0: say all of that, but uh, it seems important this week. So, ever since an early exchange with Rita in our planning for this service this morning, I cannot shake the image of Hilkiah, the high priest in our epic story this morning, as Indiana Jones. Rummaging through the temple ruins and stumbling upon the sacred, forgotten book of the law, I can no longer read this story without now picturing Hilkiah, the high priest, in that signature adventurer's hat, leather vest over a young, chiseled Harrison Ford chest. (laughs) Finding the long-lost Torah deep within the labyrinthine bowels of the temple, and then escaping on a rope bridge high above a crocodile-infested river. <laughs> Aha! Who says the Bible isn't exciting? Uh, so our story from 2 Kings is not quite that action-adventure, mythic-heroic, but it is, as I've already alluded to, quite epic. And we actually... The reading this morning skipped a significant section in the middle of the story, and I'm going to actually, in my recap, include that as part of my telling, because it's just hard to tell the beginning and the end and skip the middle. So here's the Cliff's Notes recap. Josiah becomes king at the tender age of eight. He has an illustrious 31-year reign and is done with it before I am the age that I am now. He becomes king at eight after his terrible king father, Amon, was assassinated, which was after his even more terrible grandfather, Manasseh, had ruled the people. And when he is 26, King Josiah sends his secretary, Shaphan, to Hilkiah, our Indiana Jones high priest, and has him gather all the money that's been collected at the threshold of the temple from the people. So the people would come to the temple, they'd leave their money, so they collect all of that money and has him take it to the workers who are restoring the temple, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, they're all explicitly named here. And they're not even asked to give an accounting for the money that they're given because as King Josiah asserts, they deal honestly. Which frankly reminds me I'm gonna, Isaac might know this too, reminds me of doing business in the teeny tiny town of Wakarusa where Isaac and I both grew up, where everyone knows everyone, which makes swindling or cheating of any kind an awful lot harder to pull off, right? You do that once, you get a reputation and you're gonna lose your business. So everyone knows everyone and there's accountability built in there. I know those workers who deal honestly. And I know a few of them in this room as well. So King Josiah sends Secretary Shaphan, who sends High Priest Hilkiah, into the temple to the workers. And when Hilkiah returns, he tells Shaphan that he has found the book of the law. Hilkiah gives the book of the law to Shaphan, Shaphan reads it, and then takes the book of law directly back to King Josiah, and after reporting on having successfully delivered all the money to the workers, Shaphan reads it again, and this time he reads it aloud to King Josiah. And King Josiah, upon hearing the lost book of the law for the very first time, and this is picking up where our story sort of skipped ahead, so you didn't hear this part, when he hears it for the first time, he immediately expresses his grief and his sorrow and his remorse by tearing his clothes and lamenting aloud about how their ancestors have not obeyed. They've not obeyed the words that are contained in this book of the law. So then King Josiah sends a whole team of people, the two we've already met, his secretary Shaphan and Indiana Jones high priest Hilkiah, and three others, he sends the whole team of five, to seek what is God's word for me and for us, given the fact that we have not lived in obedience to this covenant that we didn't even know existed? So that team of five <clears throat> go to Hulda, a prophet. And she, yes, the prophet is a she, she does not pull any punches. Speaking for God, the prophet Huldah confirms that God will bring disaster on all the people, because they have abandoned God, because they made offerings to other gods, because they failed to live according to the divine law. But she also offers a word of mercy, and it is specifically and only for King Josiah. Because King Josiah heard the book of the law for the first time and tore his clothes in penitence, Hulda declares that God will allow him to live a long and peaceful life, and God's wrathful disaster will rain down on the people only after he has died peacefully. So the team of five take this message back to King Josiah, and to his credit, he doesn't skip merrily away, because he gets the good news that he's going to escape the disaster. Instead, he gathers the people, and this is where the story picks up, which we heard this morning. He gathers all the people, the prophets, the priests, and the text says from the greatest to the smallest, all the people, and he reads to them the lost and found book of the covenant. He reads it aloud to them, and when he closes the book, or rolls up the scroll, more likely, when he rolls up the scroll, he makes a public covenant with God, allowed in their presence. He commits himself to following in God's ways, keeping God's commandments with all his heart and with all his soul, and to perform all the words of the covenant. In other words, he publicly commits to living this stuff, to letting it impact his actions in the world, in his life. And our story concludes with this simple yet profoundly powerful sentence, and this is all after King Josiah's public recommitment after his public reading. All the people joined in the covenant. Now we'll come back to that, but for now what I want to say is that, this, that scholars who look at this text all agree that the lost and found scroll in our story was most likely Deuteronomy, or some very significant portion thereof. And like most books in our biblical library, most of individual books in our biblical library, Deuteronomy includes mm, a few unsavory bits, but it also includes quite a few chestnuts, heartstones, touchstones, pillars of our faith. Foundationally, Deuteronomy is home to the Shema, which is still to this day the heart of Jewish prayer. And as you'll soon learn, if you don't already know, a central part of our Christian faith and practice as well, claimed as it is and was by Jesus as the first and greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. And immediately following these words that Probably many of you know by heart, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, he verbatim goes back to Deuteronomy. That's part of what's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is also replete with commands for particular love of and care for the widow. Love and care for the foreigner. Love and care for the outcast. So these strong threads that go through the Hebrew Bible are in Deuteronomy as well. Deuteronomy is also one of the two primary homes for Sabbath and Jubilee economic practices. Deuteronomy is one of the few places where God details the every seven and then the every 50 year rhythm of economic reset of wealth and land redistribution for the whole community so that none would be generationally advantaged or generationally burdened. At least not for long, because you're going to get the reset every seven years and then the really big reset every 50. So loving God with all heart, soul, and might Loving with particularity the widow, the foreigner, the outcast among them. Regularly redistributing economic resources throughout the community. All of that so that all would always have enough. All of that is the lost words of the law in our story this morning. All of that is contained. That's what they rediscovered newly that caused such trembling in King Josiah and the people because they hadn't been living in alignment with the covenant of their people and they hadn't been living in alignment with God's deepest longing for them as a community now <clears throat> I will confess that I do not love that through the prophet Huldah we learn that God promises to bring destruction disaster to all the people don't like the idea of a God who rains disaster down push, with a lightning bolt. And yet, when I read some of these judgment texts, and we've had a few in the last few weeks, when I read some of these judgment texts, I tend to think that living apart from the covenant brings its own natural consequences. And I wonder if this is what she means when she's speaking for God. In most cases, we don't actually need sort of an externally executed punishment because failing to care for the most vulnerable, failing to ensure an equitable sharing of resources among all, failing to attend carefully to our economic life together leads pretty naturally to its own punishments. It leads to unrest and instability, it leads to suffering for many and cycles of violence. And we know what that looks like because we're living right smack dab in the middle of more of the same. One of the things that I'm struck by in this story from Second Kings, in our epic story from this morning, is the lack of commentary around the words of the last, lost and found Scroll. Hold of the prophet the, who speaks for God is the only one who adds her own comment or interpretation of the book of the law and what it means for the fate of the people, that disaster. Everyone else simply reads it. They just read its words and it kind of speaks for itself. They rediscover Deuteronomy again for the first time. And time and time again in our story, its words alone were convicting and convincing. Nobody got up like I'm doing right now to preach about it. They just read it. And the words alone convicted its hearers and convinced them to something new and something different. At each reading, and there's a lot of them in the story, first Hilkiah, our Indiana Jones high priest, reads it, And then Shaphan, the secretary. And then Shaphan reads it again aloud to King Josiah. And then King Josiah reads it aloud to all the people that are gathered. And at each reading, the people rediscover the core of their ancestors' faith. Their faith, as proclaimed in the ancient text. And with each reading, they come to more deeply understand God's call to them. God's call to the people to live in covenant in relationship with God and to one another. It's a pretty moving story of receptivity, actually. Um, All these folks in our story could have been resistant. They could have uh, denied that it was authentic. There could have been all kinds of responses to the discovery, the rediscovery of this ancient text. But it's a pretty moving story of time after time, people really being receptive to it. And it has me wondering about the heart of our own faith, the core of our worship together, and what it is that we come around each week when we gather in this place together, the back-to-basic foundations of our own covenanted living with God and with one another. A question that um, Discipleship Council has been asking in some specific ways, and one example would be specifically related to our offering and worship and how it works or doesn't, how it fits with our current practices of giving or doesn't, and why do we keep doing it? So that's one specific example of a question that Discipleship Council is pondering, and it could lead to more specific questions like it, or even the more general question If we were to shed the cultural artifice that's built up around the core of our faith and our worship together, what would be underneath it all? What's there? Is there, there, there? And if so, what is it? What would remain? How would we collectively name that core of our faith and our worship life together? And I wonder how our worship, like this time right now, we've got an hour or two or maybe three together each week, and it's precious time. And I just wonder what our worship and our community life and our economic practices with one another and in the world, how it might look different, how it might be shaped differently if we had a similar reencounter with the heart of our faith whatever it is that we might say that is. Deep below all those sort of cultural assumptions and practices that we've layered on top. Things we do because we've always done. And I think of this, um, questions similar to this, um, a lot, um, especially in predominantly white Mennonite gatherings in this country, um, which is what I have the most experience with. It's predominantly white, Mennonite gatherings in the US. I think about what is artifice and what is core, and what are all those cultural layers that get built up around the core. Which is not to say that culture is bad, right? I don't, I hope you don't go away from this morning thinking that I've said culture is bad and we should get back to the core. Culture isn't bad, at least not necessarily, and maybe even as sort of a general rule, not at all. It's not bad. But culture can obscure the core. And culture can even distort our sense of what the core is. Or culture can become the thing, right? It can become the thing we worship, Uh, the thing that gets our ultimate loyalty um, and that can end up causing harm in communities where for example a smaller minority may not share the dominant culture but is getting pulled along with it as it becomes the thing so anyway just these questions are with me a lot so friends here at seattle I church we donned our own indiana jones hats and ventured far into the labyrinthine bowels of our own religious tradition, what lost treasure might we find, rediscovering again as if for the first time? Would we find the same thing? And how would it transform us and our life together? Now, we've come to the end of our story. And I do wonder what happens after the end of our story. I confess that as your pastor, I did not keep reading into Second Kings to find out, and I did not do the research. Maybe one of you knows. I don't know how the story goes. But um, history leads me to assume that the people would have carried on with the ages-old practice of recovenanting and forgetting and recovenanting and forgetting and recovenanting and forgetting. And recovenanting and forgetting ad infinitum. (laughs) And yet, if only for a time, might they have found that by reclaiming the covenant as they do at the end of our story, by stepping inside its life-giving bounds of love of God, love of neighbor, and the economic well-being of all, might they have found, rather than destruction and wrath, might they have found justice and grace. I wonder if the same might be true for us. May it be so.